The typical opium buyer is most likely part of a, I would say, well-established cartel um, and or state-sponsored. state-sponsored, I mean a representative of a government. Can you give us an example of a uh, state-funded uh, buyer? Um, there are at least two different state-sponsored buyers of opium as we speak. Uh, we have the Russians. The other one... Welcome to Spion Podden and episode 44, The Consultant, an International Special Services Provider, part 2. My name is Mikael Hulin and our guest today is still referred to as only guest in order to protect his identity. So enjoy part two. Okay, so um, let's continue our talk. Um, can we go back to Afghanistan a little bit? We, we've been all over and it's extremely interesting. But since this, since I hope that we can do more episodes together, um, I would like to continue and stay in Afghanistan as much as we can. Um, can I ask you, you said something about being a technical advisor and you had big and small assignments. But So... so being in Afghanistan, uh, what kind of, um, what kind of, what's the difference for big and small assignments? Well, typically, what happens is the size and the duration of the assignment is pinned to, for example, one the client, two how much money the client is is willing to pay. Three, the duration of, of the assignment. Is it is it one week? Is it a month? Uh, and also, of course, the complexity. Is it easy to do? Is it difficult to do? Uh, and these clients are well-informed. They are no fools. They know more or less that if you're going to do X, it's going to take a week. If it's going to do Y, it's going to take three months. So it, uh, it really depends on the client and, and the nature of the assignment. But when we talked um, earlier on, you, you said you said something about uh, one has to blend in or one has to make sure that that one is not um, seen upon as a stranger too much. And and to me, in a in a country like Afghanistan, it seems very um, it must be very difficult to 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 blend in, in in a way. Absolutely, but uh, perhaps in certain assignments, your your job is is not to blend in, but it is to be the the you know the white advisor with years of experience from different country contexts who provides then the legitimate advice to, for example, your government counterpart. So, in those particular contexts, uh, you don't really have to worry about blending in because what you're blending into then is what I referred to earlier: this massive humanitarian. Uh, UN bilateral support function. So you have 
thousands of advisors, of supporters, of officers of all kinds who provide support to schools, to institutions, to ministries, to departments, to the police force, to the fire department, to every cornerstone that normally makes up a society. So you're not alone. It's not like you're the only foreign person in that particular assignment. The assignments where you have to blend in uh, are typically of a completely different nature. And that's more like a physical uh, blending in. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, we all look in a particular way. And if you're, for example, if you're white in an all black context, you're going to be pinpointed pretty much straight away and vice versa. So absolutely. But there are ways to, to color your hair, to grow a beard, to wear different clothing. So it's, it's, it's not that difficult. Gain weight. Gain weight, lose weight, have particular shoes, have a particular suit. You wear the national gown, uh, the national dress, you wear a turban, you wear a shawl. That's, uh, it's not rocket science. The first time we met, uh, which was quite a long time ago, but you said something about the classical, you, you call it the classical expression. And let's see if you can get that into Afghanistan. But you said, follow the money. Can you explain that? Well, uh, it uh, it uh, it is a, a probably the oldest and the still current best way of, of solving crimes. Uh, you have a motive, you have principles, in other words, you have persons, and and very often money is involved. And in Afghanistan, um, let's not kid ourselves. What has funded the Taliban and essentially the entire country for, for the last oh, 30, 40, 50 years is, is opium. And the power structures that comes along with, with opium are the ones that controls the country. They are able to access funds, transfer funds, um, utilize those funds either locally and or in other bank accounts in, in other countries outside Afghanistan. But the, the primary growth, the primary processing, the primary transportation routes are all from within Afghanistan. So the, the ability to control that entire structure is what controls the power structure in Afghanistan. So what you're saying is that that we, uh, the Western world or whatever, know how Afghanistan makes their money. Absolutely. There's no doubt. There's and no we're not doubt. talking about only Taliban's now. No. Uh, uh, so you have to be a little bit careful here because the Taliban is part of the opium syndicate wherein they control the land. They control the security. They control. Um, they control the the processing, the the cave, the underground labs. But they don't always necessarily control the transportation routes. They might control the transportation routes inside the country, but once the border is reached, they no longer have control, which is perfectly okay for them. What they they don't necessarily control is the financial transactions that takes place within the international financial structures. In other words, bank accounts, transfers from one bank account to another, 
if you're, say, a buyer of raw opium, you may not always have to pay in cash. The Taliban might need gasoline, they might need vehicles, they might need ammunition, they might need weapons, they might need more and more, actually, medicines for the local population. Because in order for them to, to stay in power, they also have to be at least a little bit liked. It's not like they can be all tyrants, because they themselves live in these communities. Uh, and it's a lot easier to be at least a little bit liked in the community than be completely hated. So they also, um, they don't necessarily always rely on cash payments, but also they have a barter system whereby, for example, we want to have 20 vehicles and you get X amount of opiums, etc. But uh, we will transport it to the border and from there on the buyer is responsible for the transport to whatever international channels um, it's destined for. But you said before that, that uh, Afghanistan is divided up into many different warlords and clans. And, and, and are they also part of opium? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, for, for decades, if not hundreds of years, there has always been internal struggles within the country between between ethnic minorities, between different tribes, between different religious factions within the Muslim faith, uh, um, and uh, language divisions, etc. So it's again coming back to one of my original points, it's the failure of the international community, I guess, or, or, or the West, to recognize that Afghanistan is indeed not a country. It is a patchwork of tribes, local warlords, languages, and and religions that, in my view, was never really properly mapped out in order to give Afghanistan the possibility of becoming a success from a development perspective. So, so there, there, there are borders within these tribes, so they... No, I wouldn't call them borders per se. You, you may have checkpoints uh, along major transportation routes, but you don't have you don't have fencing. You don't have, and also don't forget, valleys and mountains provide a very formidable natural border in many ways. So, of course, you have you have regions that are essentially protected by natural boundaries, uh, and it's very easy to 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 detect in your tribal area if external persons are coming in, say, your local boundary. Okay, boundary, but, but I would call that border. So, so it, it's, but not, not, not behind that mountain, it's their territory. Yes, yeah. oh, absolutely. And it's been like that for, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But if we know the West, and if we know who they are, and we know that they make their money out of opium, how come they have foreign bank accounts? Well, they have, I mean, how come they have a foreign bank accounts? Okay, so so let's say, for example, Afghanistan has uh, bordering seven different countries. If you are a wealthy Afghan drug lord or warlord, you are very wealthy. You don't have hundreds of millions, you have billions. And that buys you quite a lot of influence. And there are a long range of banks in at least four or five of the neighboring countries that would love to do business 
because the internal clearings, uh, uh, internal compliance, if you wish, regulations in those banks are not necessarily the same as we have in the West or in Europe. So if you, if you cross the border in two pickup trucks with cash and you hand them over to a local branch of Bank X, that branch official is going to be given X amount, the money will be deposited into that account, and all of a sudden that money is accessible within the international financial system. But this is, this is widely known intelligence services from a long range of countries know these individuals, they know the banks. But again, once the money is inside the financial system, don't think for a second that the Taliban warlords are your average dummies. They may not be the most fashionable guys, they may not speak your lingo, they may have an outdated vision or view on how to run a country and how to treat women and kids, etc. But when it comes to money, they're very sophisticated. They have their own companies, sub-companies, structures. They're able to move money around quite easily. And also, don't forget, the buyers of the opium are quite happy to help establish financial structures, companies, uh, organizations to make it easy for them to buy drugs legitimately. Not to buy, but to to make the financial transaction look like it is a legitimate transaction. So give me a, 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 an example of a typical opium buyer that you're just trying to explain. The typical opium buyer is most likely part of a, I would say, well-established cartel uh, and or state-sponsored. And state-sponsored, I mean a representative of a government. And if you are either one of those two categories, you have um, your financial means, you have outreach, you have access to politicians, you have access to media, you, you can close down entire small cities, you control a wide range of network of individuals across the entire supply chain. Uh, it's very expensive, but also the profit margins on these transactions are huge. And this is something that you have been working with? I, I have worked with extensively mapping out supply routes, processing plants, laboratories, buyers, suppliers in Afghanistan, yes. Can you give us an example of a uh, state-funded uh, buying supplier? Uh, a, buy, a buyer? There are at least two different state-sponsored buyers of opium as we speak. Uh, we have the Russians who are playing both sides of the coin here. Um, they, the Russian mafia is not necessarily independent from the state. Um, so whatever the cartel is doing the state is at least aware of it, has given its tacit approval, and will for sure make money on that transaction. The other one is Iran. That's their biggest problem, isn't it? Heroin and, and opium is a very um, big uh, There are problem. at least 
two different state-sponsored buyers of opium as we speak. Uh, we have the Russians, who are playing both sides of the coin here. Um, they, the Russian mafia is not necessarily independent from the state. Um, so whatever the cartel is doing, the state is at least aware of it, has given its tacit approval, and will for sure make money on that transaction. The other one is Iran. Uh, I wouldn't call it a big sulfur problem, but it's entering into society on a, on a faster pace than, than before, yes. Simply because the access is so easy. And typically what happens in the supply chain is that it gets more expensive the further down the supply chain you get. So if you're at the border areas, it's relatively cheap versus doing the same thing in New York or Paris or, 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 or somewhere else. Because the risks increases, the transportation routes are longer, there are more checkpoints, so the closer you are to the border areas, the cheaper it is. I, I remember having a conversation with, with uh, um, a, he, he, he wasn't a warlord, but he was the right-hand man of, of the warlord that we had quite a lot of dealings with. And, and he essentially didn't blame Afghanistan. He, he, he blamed the demand equation from the West. If there was no demand, Afghanistan would never produce opium. So it's, 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 not the, it's not the opium that goes looking for cash, it's the cash that goes looking for opium. But I read just recently that the Bank of New York is, is keeping about 22 ton of Afghan gold, which the Americans have frozen for, for the, to stop the Taliban from getting access to, to this gold and billions of dollars. But uh, if, if New York, Bank of New York is keeping 22 ton of Afghan gold and they know it, it comes from opium money, I, I, it, I just don't really understand um, the equation here. I, 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 you're not alone. You are not alone. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear. Um, let's move on. Um, you, 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 you said something very interesting that you, you came into. Um, you, you, you also came into Afghanistan, or, or um, as a man, a white person with with suit and all that. So, what, uh, what kind of um, mission did you have when we talk about uh, companies or the, or the organizations the UN and, and the the as as part of let's say again you you have a large international cooperation who um, is interested in establishing for example a manufacturing plant or a factory or to, to set up agriculture or to open up a mining complex somewhere. Um, they typically often need a front person. Now, they can use one of their own executives, which would lend lots of credibility to that entire dialogue, 
or they can farm that out to individuals with local knowledge of key individuals in key ministries in key decision-making positions. So in that particular case, it was a situation where I had been approached and asked if I was interested in taking up an assignment to at least to prepare a dialogue with a ministry regarding the establishment of a mining complex. If you are a poor country and you have minerals in abundance from zinc, copper, iron, ore, rare earth metals, etc., but you have zero capabilities of taking them out, and someone comes knocking on your door asking if they're interested in pursuing a dialogue around excavating these minerals, you're going to listen. Yeah, and it's going to be more and more, in, uh, as I understand it, interesting regarding that reason. Absolutely, and, and uh, this is where I think both China and Russia are uh, looking quite favorably at the chaos uh, in, in Afghanistan at the moment. Not only from the perspective of, aha, I told you so, to the West, don't meddle in other countries' domestic issues, that gives them credence to not having done that, although that is not true. Chinese have been quite active in various parts of Afghanistan. Not so good and or not so favorably. Um, and also from the perspective of uh, China is on a constant quest for meeting its insatiable demand for every type of metal and or mineral they possibly can get their hands on. And Afghanistan is a very mineral-rich country. It sounds like a pretty dangerous future prospect. Absolutely. And especially since it's now looking like most of the ministries and the institutions will be taken over by um, people who represent the Taliban with very little knowledge of any of the core functions of each of those ministries, it would be very easy for, let's say, a, a Chinese business delegation to smoothly talk them into signing long-term concessions um, for then what is probably being considered as short-term gains for the Taliban financially, but long-term would be absolutely detrimental to the country. Just before I go move on to the last questions, can you just explain who and what are the Taliban? Just short. Okay, so um, Tali is essentially uh, a religious student. Taliban has been a movement in Afghanistan for a very long time. Its interpretation of Islam are strict. They believe in Sharia, which is the probably the strictest form of of Islam. Sharia, and and that's what we what we learned with the ISIS. Exactly, but I I, I think it's quite important to also recognize, and I'm not sure people have been in the media world, for example, terrorist organizations and radical groups of any form of religion is often lumped together. 
But I think it's important to recognize, at least from my engagement with the Taliban, as well as with members of ISIS, Taliban and ISIS doesn't necessarily go well together. Okay. They don't have the same core philosophy. They might have the same core philosophy, but the application of that philosophy is widely different. So when the international intelligence community essentially were scared that you would see a pairing up of ISIS and Taliban, they were probably pretty surprised that it didn't happen to the extent they thought it would be. Now, that's not to say that it's not going to happen, but at least so far, ISIS and Taliban, they don't really go well together. Okay, so so and go go back to Taliban. The, the, the Sharia, uh, so, so they're, they're not a, a, a people, they are a, a religion. Uh, no, I, I would say it's a, it's a movement that has been formed uh, over decades. It's gone through different nuances depending on who the, the, how the power structures were formed. But the core belief is in Sharia which is the strictest form of the Islamic faith. Uh, the application of that has been absolutely brutal. We've seen it. And uh, that is one of the, um, the sticking points at the moment. People are scared that Sharia will be again introduced to the country, setting the country back decades when it comes to especially the rights for women, girls, education, uh, media, uh, you know, activists, uh, etc. So that, I think, is a legitimate concern. The Taliban, uh, the two factions, it's also important to, to understand that there are currently two, two factions of Taliban on the global stage. One is, of course, the... the uh, the Taliban's who have been representing the Taliban movement in Doha, Qatar, who's been responsible for the negotiation between the various principal partners. The current one, yeah. The current one, absolutely. And then you have the Taliban who are the fighting forces. Now, they might have the same name, but I, I would not be surprised to see that there will be large rifts in between what is now referred to the soft Taliban and the hard Taliban, when they come back from Doha into Kabul, starting to to discuss and agree on what the power sharing structures are going to be, what ministries, what blocks of Kabul will belong to what person, etc. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's too early to tell, I think. But it's going to be interesting to see how those two groups within the Taliban manages to to form a functioning power structure without internal conflicts. I think that would be very difficult. I think that's a very interesting question because um, or issue because I I read a lot about the so-called I quote new Taliban and and as I, I call am, them softies. You call them softies. But um, and as I understood, they they are the ones who have been in in Doha negotiating. And what would you say would why would they be different than the ones um, fighting? Well, 
The reason why they're in Doha is probably within its own power structure. They have uh, they have um, particular skill sets that the movement perceived as being favorable in having conversations with the other principal countries when it came to peace agreements, etc. So many of them speak English fluently. In fact, many of them have been educated in the UK, uh, in France, in Holland, etc have returned, speak English fluently, have a slightly different worldview. Not to say that they're all of a sudden going to institutionalize democracy and, and elections, etc. But I think the, the many of the hard Talibans, they've never been outside their own district, their own province, and they're hardcore. Uh, it'd be very interesting to see how the two groups now gel, because... I think the hard Taliban realizes quite clearly that without the group of Talibans that have been spearheading the negotiations, they wouldn't be where they are right now. And the ones that spearheads the conversations with other countries and the peace agreements realize clearly that they wouldn't be anywhere without the fighting forces representing the hard Taliban. Now, how the two will sit down and agree if that will be bloodless or not, I think that remains to be seen. So what you're saying is that, that the, the Doha Talibans have been living the creme de la creme for a while. Oh, absolutely. They have been very far from caves and mud huts, uh, living a, a pretty cushy life uh, uh, on behalf of Qatar, who's who been been hosting these talks. Uh, and I think they perhaps have now gotten a taste a little bit of what life could be in, in a privileged position outside Afghanistan. I, I'm reading, uh, I read an article at a very interesting Swedish magazine called Blank Spot. And they're, they're, they have a uh, quite new article about the Taliban's, they grow on Twitter while uh, Donald Trump is still banned on it. What, what, what do you think about that? You know, I think uh, I, I don't agree with it, uh, to be honest. Um, you may like Mr. Trump or not, but uh, for him to be banned on essentially what is a shareholding controlled company, uh, I think is wrong. Um, a country that prides itself on free speech should not I think allowed that to happen. It just essentially tells the rest of the world that this whole concept of free speech is great as long as you like what you're hearing. And I think it's a huge debate. I think it's a debate that needs to be had. Um, but it's an issue that regards everything on, on Facebook. If, if the Facebook doesn't like what you post, they, they, they ban you or, or cut you out or take it away. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I think, I mean, these organizations, uh, Facebook... Twitter, um, to some extent Apple, Samsung, they are by themselves very powerful countries. They can determine elections, they can ban people, they can hang people out, they can... Uh, I, I, I think we need to do a little bit of a reset and go back and see what type of mediums we want to have in our societies. I, I, I certainly don't have the answer to it, but I don't agree, for example, that a certain international leader should be able to speak freely and then the leader of the free world should be banned on, on Twitter. I, I think it's a farce. 
it's a very interesting and a very huge question. But um, let's go back to, to Afghanistan. Um, I read that the, in the document from the 13th of July, uh, UN or American diplomats uh, warned the U.S. U, the USA the U.S. Uh, government about the Afghanistan collapse. Uh, is this something that you have heard about? I, I I haven't heard of, of, of that particular announcement or warning, but it's been quite well known throughout not only the intelligence community, but also throughout the, the development community that Afghanistan um, in the last three to five years has entered again into a period of unprecedented fragility. In other words, institutions are not as strong as one would have hoped. The educational system is barely up and running. Uh, you still have the pressure of, of corruption and warlords, drug lords. Uh, you have a hierarchy system, essentially, that is controlling pretty much everything. So I think, I think this has been on, on the map and on the desks of many diplomats, uh, many Afghan experts for a very long time. But then again, I mean, don't forget, there is a disconnect between politics, military, diplomats, and the local context. Absolutely. So I'm not surprised that these warning flags were raised early on. What I am surprised about is perhaps the speed at which the Taliban has been able to move. Um, not only its positioning, but forces and how easy it was for them to penetrate the various small and large cities in the provinces where you had a fairly large presence of the Afghan armed forces, who again, obviously did not feel strong enough about the Afghan flag to stay and fight, but rather felt a stronger allegiance to their own power structure in their own local context and or provinces or, or warlords, and therefore essentially hacked up and ran. Literally. 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 And, and I think... Um, I feel for the many American and international military personnel who've, over the past 10, 15 years, spent hundreds of billions of dollars in training Afghan forces, providing them with equipment, with skills, with even paying their salaries for long periods, now having to watch, essentially, 10, 15 years of hard work uh, completely being ruined in in a week. I I I I I feel for them. I feel for them. But you said um, that you've been hearing in in the intelligence society. Uh, you, you've been hearing about the the collapse of Afghanistan, or that it's not going the right way for a couple of years. So what were you hearing? But I mean, you, you, um, it only takes a short while uh, to be in Afghanistan to realize that, that everything is not necessarily working the way it should be. And it's from 
uh, you know, the local shop to the local administration to roads to the health system to to water and sanitation to education. I mean, the list is endless. In situations like that, it is very easy to pick up and map intelligence and put it together into rather comprehensive scenarios. And uh, Afghanistan is riddled with international intelligence services, official, non-official, etc. So they've had their fingers on the pulse of Afghanistan for a very long time. Now, there's a disconnect sometimes between the, the map of a country that an intelligence services draws up than what the political acceptance of that map is. And the intelligence services, perhaps their methods have not always been that kosher or that great. And there might be a small mistrust between the reports from the intelligence services to their respective governments. And um, I think that too has led to what we're now seeing, a dismantling essentially of, of institutions and structures in Afghanistan. And it's, it's very sad to see. We're coming to the end of this interview, but let's just finally, in your mind, what shall we be looking for or what, what, what's the prospect of and what's our concern regarding Afghanistan in the close future? I, um, I think it is too early to tell. Uh, there are a lot of hypotheses and scenarios being discussed. Obviously, people are concerned. Um, um, I, I, I do think media has played uh, a not-so-useful role because they're clearly biased. I, it's, it's too early to tell, but I, I think it's quite plausible to see a situation where Afghanistan is able to attract a whole new kind of, of supporters. I think we will see China playing a much more prominent role. I think Russia will most likely try to enter as a, as a, as a trusted business partner uh, of sorts. Uh, I do think Pakistan will come in as playing a greater role than they have right now because they share a, a significant border which is on the Pakistan side already quite difficult and has presented huge amounts of opportunities for the Taliban to come into the Vasilistan area etc. Uh, lots of tribal connections between Vasilistan and Afghanistan. Uh, I think uh, the international community and the United Nations and the World Bank and, and and all these large institutions, um, they will most likely maintain some sort of presence uh, that they're quite good at, and I think the Taliban will allow that to happen. I think we'll see um, the the chaos that we see at the airport and at checkpoints 
Um, I think that will subdue slightly when the dust is settled and when the power sharing structure between the new and or the soft Taliban's and the hard Taliban's have have been organized. Uh, up until that point, we'll probably see some more chaotic situations and scenes. But I don't think that the Taliban is that interested in a prolonged period of chaos. I, I just don't see how that would work in their favor. So they're going to be quickly, I think, trying to, to get a power structure in place um, uh, because uh, it's in their best interest. The, the more power they have, the more outreach they have, the better it is and the easier it is to control the country, especially its natural resources and its opium. I think the international community is, is, is going to have to wait and see um, and, uh, and to reconcile, I think, a lot of what went wrong and to not necessarily find scapegoats, but to to rectify this in, in future contexts that will be similar to Afghanistan, because there will be many, many to come. In in my world and what's going on here, I, I read on, on, and I even posted it on a fantastic uh, little thing. It says, if you ever feel useless, just remember that the USA took four presidents, thousands of lives, trillions of dollars and 20 years to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. And that's a very sad prospect, and that's a very sad scenario. But but you're also telling me that Russia, who actually were the ones who started invading Afghanistan and fighting the Taliban. Well, it was actually the British. I mean, we're talking. I mean, it is Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires for a reason. What reason? Well, because empires have tried to control and take over Afghanistan for hundreds and hundreds of years and they've always failed okay my my bad but i didn't know about the british but but russia anyway with their fighting and then the americans came um and now russia who you say also is is um, supporting the the opium trade is now again going to be a major player in in afghanistan i i think so i think it's 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 inevitable i think um uh, I think it's inevitable that China will be an increasingly large and significant player. I think European Union may or may not have the appetite to do this much longer. The Americans clearly have not had the appetite. Uh, and this is the political appetite. Again, as I was saying earlier, if the militaries representing the various functions and countries and organizations in Afghanistan had been given free card or carte blanche, they could have won the war over the Taliban. Uh, I wouldn't say easily, but it, it uh, they would have been able to overpower them, I would say, in less than three years. But they, they were simply not allowed because the militaries have rules on engagement. And just like in Vietnam, public opinion matters. And when public opinion swings... On the home side, you mean? On the home side. And when public opinion swings, politicians listen. Their mandate periods are typically very short, three to five years. 
And um, if you want to get reelected, you better stay close or you pay close attention to public opinion. And much like in Vietnam, the Afghan war is not very popular in the U.S. Understandably. Understandably. Yeah. Okay, well, um, so the Russians are back, the Talibans are back, uh, we're back where we started uh, many, many years ago. Um, not a very uh, promising look at the future. Well, I, I, I wouldn't be that pessimistic, to be honest. I, as I think I mentioned earlier, there has been progress. I mean, in some areas, there have been quite significant amount of progress, basically because the baseline was so low. So the education system, for example, um, is still poor and fragile, but I mean, don't forget, there's been a generation of Afghan girls that have come through the educational system in, in, in 15 years. So that is not a lost investment because these women will most likely continue to stay in Afghanistan, have a different worldview, and hopefully take up part of this new power sharing agreement, possibly, at least role lower functions of government institutions than being able to penetrate with policies, with strategies that are then applicable throughout various parts of the country. I think another aspect that we, that I'm positive about is the Afghan entrepreneurship. There's been hundreds and hundreds of new businesses propping up everything from mechanics to car repair shops to cafes to to restaurants to flower shops to uh i mean i mean every possible entrepreneurial spirit you can touch upon is in kabul and in the four large cities um in terms of infrastructure at least some of the main roads that connect some of the largest cities have been um have been erected They provide relatively easy access to and from large access points. Um, so, so it's not it's not all bad. It's it's easy to get that view when you're sitting comfortably at home on the couch and you're watching the news, when you don't really know about all the other quite positive stuff that you know. For example, organizations like the UN, a number of UN organizations has been there for 20, 30 plus years. And their and their work should not go unnoticed. And this is what when you said that the media is biased, could this be a problem, or could this? Yeah, I, I do. I do think the media has been biased. Uh, I don't have the appropriate statistics, but I would I would imagine that the overwhelming stories that are being featured on any media outlet today about um, you know about Afghanistan is of the chaos that are currently ongoing and not necessarily the the promotion of, of, of young girls into schools, classrooms, and learning how to read and write and, and getting a proper education, uh, uh, the expansions of the local road networks, uh, etc. So I, I, yeah, of course they're biased. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, you know, information about the chaos at the airport, but but you're saying that the, the life from the airport, I mean, outside of the airport, might not be as bad as, as we think because of the no i'm not saying that i i think i think life right now in kabul is tough absolutely but you know we were discussing failures and so forth but um um there's been a lot of development work that is good and decent for sure 
in Afghanistan. And that has had an impact on at least one generation of Afghans. And don't forget, there was relatively peaceful, considering the Afghan history, in the last 15 years. And 15 years is sort of half a generation, if you wish. So that whole batch of young Afghans that have experienced a peaceful youth, their presence in the future of Afghanistan is going to be noted, hopefully, unless they pick up their bags and flee like everyone else. That's a very, very good ending and a promising ending uh, to this interview. Is there anything else you want to say? Okay, thank you so very much for this opportunity and for the honor of, of visiting Spionpodden. I'm very grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening this time and uh, thanks for writing me. It's always nice to hear from the listeners, but also nice to get some nice tips on books and events and uh, for potential episodes. So keep up the good work. I really appreciate it. And don't forget to visit us on Facebook and page Spionpodden and or Instagram, where I try to find time to post interesting extra material from each episode. So until next time, bye.